This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with the independent, family-run butcher, H.G. Walter. Now, I'm particularly excited about this because for over 10 years, I have been a customer of H.G. Walter for both my cooking jobs and also for at home too. They are one of the most respected butchers in the UK, supplying some of the best chefs and restaurants in the country. So it's quite cool to know that you are getting restaurant quality meat at home. And I know I've said this a million times before, but if you start with good ingredients, your life as a cook is so much easier. You barely have to do anything for it to taste delicious. And we know that good quality meat is more important than ever. If you're anything like me, you are thinking more and more about the provenance of the food you eat. And so having a butcher you can trust like H.G. Walter is just a very comforting thing. Also, never underestimate the knowledge of a butcher. If you don't know how to cook something, ask when you're in there. They know so much. They can advise about cooking times, the weight you need, and they'll always have delicious ideas for how they like to serve something. I found this kind of information absolutely invaluable when I was starting out as a chef. So I am thrilled to be telling you all about HG Walter today. They're based in London, but they deliver nationwide and you can find out more at www.hgwalter.com. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, how is everyone? Today's episode is an extra long one, but honestly, I could have chatted to David all day and it was really hard to cut bits out. This was the first time I had met David, but genuinely, it felt like I was talking to an old friend. David is one of those rare people who is unbelievably successful, one of the most famous photographers of our time, but very modest and completely down to earth. I loved hearing his story from his thoughts on photography, how he got started, how he first met Jamie Oliver, which is quite the story. And I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. My guest today is David Loftus. David is one of the most influential photographers of all time, often fondly referred to as Lord Loftus. Award-winning and internationally acclaimed, David has done the photography for the books of Jamie Oliver, Rachel Koo, Gennaro Contaldo, Elizabeth David and April Bloomfield. For over 20 years, David has photographed over 150 books, including all but one of Jamie Oliver's international bestsellers. His work with Jamie Oliver alone has resulted in book sales of over 30 million copies. You will have looked at David's photographs, even if you were unaware of it at the time. Because of all of this, you may well be forgiven for thinking David's speciality is food and food alone. But the truth is, he also shoots fashion, portraits, landscapes and reportage for the likes of Red Magazine, Condé Nast Traveller, Soho House, to name just a few. Together with Hipstamatic, he's developed the most successful downloadable camera pack to date, known as the Loftus Lens. His stripped-back, fuss-free style of photography has won David numerous awards over the years, and he's been described as the 65th most influential photographer of all time. Welcome, David. 
Thank you. <laughs> you were sort of wincing as I did that. Do you find it uncomfortable listening back to everything you've achieved? I do. I'm, I'm the, I have the worst imposter syndrome known to man. So, do you? So hearing things like that. And the 65th thing, I honestly, when I was initially told, I thought it was a complete joke. Did I thought you? I thought I was listening to a prank call. <laughs> did you get a phone call about it? I did. I did. And it was very sweet. And, and you know, it was from Professional Photographer Magazine, which is obviously... As a professional, you look at it as a bit of a Bible, but so, mm. so um, it was. Um, they were quite highfalutin people who were deciding on this list, um, but I was between other people who I just—they were my heroes, you yeah. know, growing up. So it was very strange. Who was your biggest hero growing up? Probably Sebastiano Delgado at that point, and he was next to me in the mm. list. Um, but then I looked at the list and. Um, it was actually a journalist phoned me up and wanted to talk about it. And he said, you do realise there were only, I think there were only five living Englishmen on the list. And I just thought it was nuts. Also, when I read that, that was back in 2010. So I think you will have climbed know, the I ranks know. even more so, I which know. is incredible. I, I did quite enjoy that ranking was in at 100. I was. <laughs> <laughs> that gave me a certain amount of... Very satisfying. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> when we were arranging this recording, there was a slight delay in your response one time, and then you came back and explained that you'd been shooting in the Californian desert, which was perhaps the coolest explanation I've ever received. How much of the year do you spend away on location? Uh, it really depends. I, I mean, I do travel a huge amount, but I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of home bot, so I do, I do race home again as soon as I've finished. Mm. I don't, I don't sort of have any downtime. So I whiz away and, you know, if there's a week between shoots, I'll come home rather okay. than rather than carry on. Yeah. Have you um, always been that way? Um, yes. <laughs> I like family and friends, so I need that in my life. Mm. So I do return. So there's a lot of travel. And the desert at the moment, for some reason, is you know, that's every three months. Oh, wow. So okay. I go backwards and forwards. For the same job? It's two different clients. Okay. Um, the lovely thing about being in the States is that I'm not a food photographer at all in the States. So it's all portraits mm. and landscapes and amazing architecture. Doing a lot around Palm Springs and Rancho Mirage and places like that. Very glamorous. Yes, very glamorous. <laughs> and, so. and I work with this fantastic little design group, Robin and John, and they're English. And they're very Palm Springs. They drive a white Corvette, dress oh, all in black, and have bleached <laughs> oh, white Mohicans. And, oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, so I feel like, you know, the cool cat in the desert. Yeah, that is <laughs> achingly cool. In fact, I was shooting cool cats last week. I was shooting cheetahs. Oh, really? It was people and their pets, people and their exotic pets, which sounds Who nuts. Who has a cheetah? There was a wonderful lady who sponsored two rescue cheetahs. So she has these two cheetahs that uh, were rescued from poachers. Oh wow! Um, Do they live it, with her at home? No, no. no, they're in a they're in a place called the Living Desert. Okay. At the end of this podcast, we are going to send you to a desert island. How does yeah. the thought of that make you feel? Uh, pretty good, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, not bad. I spend quite a lot of time in the Bahamas, and there's one little tiny island that I sometimes sit on and imagine myself being. Marooned, yeah. Yeah. and luckily, I've spent a lot of my time around people who've taught me about food and mm. and survival and foraging and all those things. So as long as there are the bits there, okay, it'd be the worst thing would be to 
find yourself on a desert island and find there are no trees and no shrubs and yeah. nothing edible. That would be quite bad. I think this is a shrubby one. It's a shrubby one, <laughs> full of coconut trees and definitely, yeah, yes, yeah, papaya trees. Ooh, hopefully, yeah, that would be the dream. Let's talk about the first desert island dish. What's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood? So I grew up as an identical twin, mm. as you probably know, and we had quite competitive eating habits. Oh, did you? Yeah. So being identical, you always wanted to be slightly different. Mm-hmm. So so you'd pick the opposite cereal or the opposite dessert or the opposite. <laughs> So, uh, for example, John, my twin, always had baked beans on his main course. And it didn't matter what it was, whether it was spaghetti bolognese or it was a steak. You know, he would always ask for half a tin of Heinz um, baked beans <laughs> on the side. Okay. To the point that actually when he was in his 20s and he went to the Lord Mayor's banquet, we always got on very well with waiting staff. And we were always taught by our father to be almost treat them as best friends it's a good way to go through life. Definitely. It's a life lesson. Mm. Treat your waiter as your best friend. And, you know, every meal is a joy. Yeah. Um, and he turned around and the and the the guy at the Lord Mayor's show said, he, he noticed he, John wasn't eating his dinner and he actually wasn't feeling very well. But, and John said, well, normally I have some baked beans on the side of my <laughs> side. And <clears throat> 10 minutes later, half a tin of Heinz baked beans turned up. Oh, my opened. goodness. At the Lord Mayor's banquet, and he was <laughs> poured out the home baked beans. But at breakfast, we used to have different cereals, and then we'd build a wall of cereal boxes. Mm-hmm. We were quite a big family, so and we'd have a wall between us, and we'd try and look at each other which one was eating, but we'd always be eating a different cereal. <laughs> Did you ever order the baked beans just to try and confuse everyone as to who was who? I'll be honest, I baked beans didn't really enter my life until after he died. Okay. And then I started eating baked beans. Mm. In fact, at a book launch um, a few years ago, um, I was asked by Carousel, you know, lovely Carousel, mm. the, um, which is one of my favourite places. And uh, I was asked what um, what to serve the guests at the book launch, and I had them serve baked beans. Oh, that's and it was lovely. so sweet. It was so sweet. And, of course, everyone likes baked beans. Yeah. You know, Everyone's going to be happy with that. They're sweet comfort food. They are. But probably the the dish that reminds me most is probably rice pudding, which is so unfashionable. But he would stir in some raspberry jam and I'd have apricot jam. I would. <laughs> and he'd stir it in a anti-clockwise. Stop. And I would stir <laughs> it in a clockwise. Stop. I mean, I know it sounds really <laughs> OCD, but it wasn't. It was just this sort of competitive, you know, I'm different. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I've never heard that before. Because we were always muddled so, and we hated the fact that... Did you? Yeah. So he would be called David, I'd be called John and you secretly always thought, but we're both so different, mm. so different. Did you have very different personalities? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> first time I ever saw myself, I was interviewed on television. The first time I saw myself interviewed um, was after he died and I found it so upsetting because what I realised was that we were so similar mm. and all our little mannerisms and, you know, tone of speech and little ways we moved our hands and lips and everything was exactly the same. I always thought they were completely different. It's amazing. Yeah. And you spend so much more time 
looking at a sibling than you do it yourself, obviously. You so it's a yeah. very strange thing to actually see yourself. Plus, I have I don't really look in mirrors. I've, uh, after he died, I, I I stopped looking in mirrors. Mm. I don't shave. It was probably why I stopped shaving. Mm. I hate looking in a mirror because I started seeing those little mm. similarities. So as a result, I very rarely look in a mirror. Yeah. And when you see a photo, I'm always horrified. <laughs> <laughs> no, David, you told me about your birthday earlier and no one would believe that you've just had a significant birthday. You have written a cookbook, which, of course, you shot yourself and you are very famously very good friends with Jamie Oliver and have shot some of the best cookbooks in the world. How do you personally feel about food? I mean, it's what brings most of us together. I mean, it has given me a, a really lovely career, mm. which has been amazing. But ultimately, it's about meeting people. I mean, I had dinner with Jamie the other night at a place that neither of us had eaten at. And um, I, I love watching him, the way he analyzes every flavor and every, again, the minutiae of every dish and is constantly inspired. Mm. And, you know, I'm inspired by art and music and all sorts. He's inspired by food. Mm. And ultimately, food is nature and... Anything that I do is somehow related to it, whether it's, you know, reportage or travel or whatever. So I feel very blessed with what I get to do yeah. and who I get to follow. And The similarities that you've just said between you and Jamie, how you, you're very detail-orientated, mm. do you think that is in some ways the secret to being very successful at something? You have to really care about the, the details. Maybe, yeah. I think it's also that always knowing that you need to learn. Mm. I think that really helps. And Jamie and I are in the same boat there. Massive imposter syndrome hate helps because, of course, you always strive to be better. Mm. I mean, you know, someone asked me to analyse my own photography. I'm writing a book at the moment about my photography and the biggest problem of writing about my own work is I don't rate it. Do you really so, not? Because no, I read that no, in so, so many interviews. But no, David, so, how can that be true? So that that means, as a result, I'm very self-critical. But also, of course, pointing out the flaws in one's own work hopefully teaches other people, again, to, to be better at photography. I mean, I can point out that I, I judge the Pink Lady Awards every year. Mm. And, you know, the photography I see there sometimes is so sublime, so gorgeous and risky and you know, out there and amazing. And I, I'm just constantly blown away by people's talent and the sort of, um, you know, the searching. The person, in fact, the person um, who was part of the people, uh, the group that named me 65th, he used to work, he was a picture editor at the Times, and um, he said I had a very hungry eye, mm. which I always thought was rather sweet way of looking at her. Mm. And it's true, it's hungry eyes. Yeah, I read that. So what what exactly did he mean by hungry eyes? I Just... think it's that always searching, mm. always wanting to learn. I kind of go through life, I see everything as a, as a sort of golden rectangle, really. So when I look at a room, as I look at you now, I'm looking at the best angle, I'm looking at the best light. I'm I hope you are, the... David. I yes, <laughs> you are. You're both bathed in glorious light. But, you know, I see I see beauty in most things. Mm. Quite often I'm sent into quite dangerous situations and whether it's, I don't know, gangs in L.A. or or, or fishermen out at sea. Or, and even when the scene is ugly, I mean ugly and mean and horrid, 
you know, I'm trying to find a pretty picture. Mm. I mean, I'm sure most photojournalists think my work is probably too pretty. I'm probably too commercial for most sort of art photographers or... I've never heard uh, anyone say that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it, I'm still trying to find the beauty. I mean, mm. I was writing about the gangs of LA the other day and, you know, I spent several days with the Bloods and it was brutal, brutal, mm. cruel, you know, and it was machine guns and people being shot and it was nasty. It was really mm. nasty. And I did the same in New Orleans. When you say you spent time with them, meaning they well, were happy for you to be there. Yeah, so I was there as part of a team with Channel 4. Mm. So it was around Jamie's American series. So it's things like a gang christening or an after-funeral event with, you know, jazz band stuff. I was actually attacked at that event quite badly mm. and knocked unconscious. Why? For being there. With a camera? Partly because I was white in a very impoverished post-Hurricane Katrina world with a camera. Mm. But uh, it was terrifying. I mean, really terrifying. But still, I look. There's a picture I took a few seconds before I was knocked unconscious. It's really pretty. Is it? <laughs> and it's actually the person that knocked me unconscious. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so I'm not very good at doing mm. ugly. That's so interesting. There is beauty in in every mm. situation. Yeah. We're going to have to pause there in a very unnatural segue, David. We're going to talk about the second desert island dish. <laughs> What was the first dish you learned to cook? So my mother taught me how to make spaghetti bolognese, which I think is one of, some sort of spaghetti dish is one of life's must-know hacks. Yeah. Because, you know, you can romance with spaghetti. Mm. You can break up with someone with spaghetti. Oh, no, you, can, you must never break up with someone over no, spaghetti. You know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. lady you in, can... <laughs> the lady in the tramp style. Yeah, exactly. You cut the spaghetti off and it falls and they know it's all over (laughs) (laughs) my dog actually occasionally i've got a little toy poodle called digby and sometimes he does the lady in the tramp with me with with spaghetti (laughs) bolognese and he sucks in the spaghetti it's so sweet i mean obviously i break off at the last minute obviously because you know one shouldn't really kiss a dog's nose (laughs) but um the um so it was either spaghetti bolognese and it was a great recipe and I haven't changed at all. I think I probably add red wine now, which, well, Mm. I know I add red wine, which I don't think I did when I learned it at the age of eight. Yeah, understand. Um, But um, the other thing might have been coconut ice. I learned them both at the same time, which I probably haven't made since. But you know the coconut ice, which is half pink, half white. Oh, yes. I haven't thought about that That was such a childhood memory. So incredibly sweet. But yeah, so so I learned main course and dessert at the same time. Perfect. So what was your mum's secret to the best bolognese? You know, I don't think it was any great secret. It was just it was just a classic. You mm. know, it was lots of onions and celery and tomato. Um, tomato obviously, but carrot at the beginning, and then lots of tomatoes, lots of veg. Actually, in hindsight, mm. my father always had a dicky heart, so she was always pumping the veg. Okay, and using good quality meat. Mm. But as a result, we ate quite healthily growing up, which was really good. I mean, you've now spent thousands of hours in the company of these amazing chefs. Do you think that has rubbed off on your own cooking at home? Definitely. Absolutely. I mean, I still, I probably shouldn't say this as as a photographer of cookbooks, but I've never actually done a recipe from a cookbook. Have you you really never? No. 
not wow. one. Wow. I mean, I've heard people say that before, but I wasn't expecting you to say that. No, I look at the pictures mm. and, I, and I read bits, but some cookbooks like Jeremy Lee or, you know, they need to be read because they're so witty and mm. charming. But um, but no, I've never done a recipe from a cookbook. So Although I think maybe that's fair enough because the other people that tend to say that are recipe writers. If you're a recipe writer, it's then very hard to follow a recipe. And so I guess the same wisdom applies to you that you're part of creating these beautiful books. And so yeah. it kind of stands to reason that you wouldn't then use yeah. them. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm a very restless photographer, so I don't stand around and do nothing. Okay. So I shoot reportage while things mm. are being cooked. So as a result, I get the full recipe. But, you know, you think Jamie Oliver, I've shot almost every dish he's ever invented. So my knowledge of cooking is okay. Mm. You know, most of it's gone in and stayed in there. So Gennaro has probably taught me every pasta dish I can think of. Chris Bianco, best pizza chef in the world, you know, sitting with him in Phoenix, Arizona, being made pizzas it's amazing you know so any dish that i make has some relevance to something i've done in the past and it's just to remind oneself after a very busy day yep that's <laughs> and the brain is and it's of course it's normally at night time when you've had a very long day it was your father really i believe who began your love affair with photography when he gave you a camera for christmas but i don't think you instantly took to it is that right no i didn't i'm Sadly, the first photo I ever took, because it was Christmas, the weather was particularly pants, so it was rainy and grey and miserable. And we walked up the road to the uh, Oaks, which is in Cushorn Beaches, where where we ended up growing up, having moved out of London. My mother was a doctor there, and uh, my mother was on call Christmas Day, so it was a bit of a mm. sad Christmas Day anyway. Mm. So we all went up to the Oaks and my sister was riding her bicycle through the woods and I thought I'd take a picture of her riding towards me with my new Olympus trip. <laughs> and the following week when I got the film back from the chemist, which, you know, it took a week, you'd get it back. I couldn't believe they were all blurred. So it made me utterly miserable. I thought <laughs> my father insisted I should learn black and white first. So black and white on a grey, miserable day of a moving sister on a bicycle. Just, it was hopeless. Mm. But then my father started buying me these... He, he retired um, 20 years before um, my mother, so he was 20 years older than my mother. Okay. And he retired early with his dicky heart. He was a broker in the city. And he used to wander down to a little local bookshop called Reading's, and he would buy me these very arty photography books. They were called Camera. And um, the photos were either quite erotic, which always surprised me oh. as a young <laughs> man, uh, often black and almost always black and white, actually, um, and quite often blurry. Mm, on purpose. On purpose. Mm. And it did make me realise actually blur was okay. Mm. So it wasn't it wasn't just a casual gift of a camera. It sounds like your father, he was really thinking thinking this through and thinking this could be something that you would really enjoy. I think so. I mean he was he was slightly worried that I didn't have as many hobbies as my twin. Okay. But again, it was that thing, and my, my twin had this thing of he painted Napoleonic soldiers from a very young age. Oh, did he? I mean 
I don't know why. I have no idea why. But so, again, it was that thing of being different. My father was definitely worried that I didn't have enough hobbies. Okay. So I think he bought the camera for that reason. And it worked. Yeah, he knew. You studied graphic design at Chelsea School of Art. And the story goes that you had quite a horrible time with some of the tutors there. And it was really a case of trying to get away from them that led you to photography because you could spend so much time in the dark room. Is that really, is that really how it went? It is, yeah. I was utterly miserable there. I had some very sweet friends. John was at Kingston, which was far more commercial, and he mm. was doing graphic design with illustration. I was doing graphic design with illustration. Mm. His was far more, you know, pushing you up and nurturing you. Mine was graphic design is for losers oh. uh, and you need to paint like a German expressionist bigger more abstract the better um, get yourself serially covered in muck and and I was you know I was this sort of kind of closet miniaturist mm. doing these little detailed drawings and so my at the end of the second year my head of department turned around to me and said David you remind me very much of my daughter she always wanted to be something she never would be oh <gasps> What do you mean? That's the end of my second year. So you think I've only got one year left to try and do something with my life. Why would Um, they say that? I know. It's like, it's, I mean, it's bullying, isn't it, really? Have you ever seen them since? No, funny enough, I was asked to do, because, of course, I turned out to be a success. Mm. Um, I was asked to speak at her memorial service. (gasps) So I said, yeah, I'll do it. But you, but you have to accept that I will say exactly (laughs) what she said to me. So, of course, I never heard from them again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I can't believe they asked you. That's outrageous. It's so funny. That's outrageous. Oh, you know she was dining off the fact that she taught you. Oh, um, absolutely, I'm sure. I'm sure. But um, but no, it was pretty horrible. I actually applied to go to Kingston to join John Mm. um, after my second year. And Kingston said, absolutely, I could come. But um, I spoke to my parents and and quite rightly, they said, just see it out and somehow we'll make it all work. But I hid in the dark room for a long time. The pub and the dark room were my sort of solaces, I'm afraid. (laughs) No, but it is funny how life happens, isn't it? That... Something like that led to your, you discovering this real talent for photography, which, you know, you probably would have ended up getting there anyway. Yeah, but it has meant my wine drinking, probably. <laughs> so it's, wine and photography are both a result of bullying at art college. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. What's the best dish you've ever eaten? It's a really tough one, isn't it? So, so I work with this wonderful bunch of beardies mm. um, in the Sussex countryside. They, they're in Furl and hunter-gather-cook and they're foragers and they all work with live fire. They're amazing. And hunter-gather-cook is also a, a truffle hunter mm. and he has this little half-blind dog called Bee Dog Weston that he taught to truffle hunt with a, with a, with a um, tennis ball uh, which he covered in truffle oil. Oh, and wow. he would hide it. And he taught Bee Dog Weston to be a truffle hunter. And it, and it turns out in some bits of Sussex, the chalky soil, you get a lot of truffles. Oh, wow, I didn't know so that. So he goes truffle hunting and he then cooks in a barn and they teach people about foraging and uh, butchery and things mm. like that. They're amazing. And um, Chris, who is T-Bone Chops, will then 
use those truffles in some of his dishes. And he always worries about me, uh, thinks I need feeding, and worries that I don't eat during shoots, which I don't. I just keep going, really. And he did once make me the most extraordinary scrambled eggs mm. with Burford Browns, truffles, no oil, just amazing little sort of, Jamie would always call them these little sort of flavour bombs of cheese mm. you know, in the scrambled egg on some amazing sourdough toast, which uh, was made by possibly the best baker in the world, a guy called David Wright, who's now at Pump Street. And mm. so you imagine this sort of perfect sourdough, cultured butter, you know, the most amazing eggs, little flavour bombs of cheese, and then a lot of black truffles oh. on top, which have just been found by B-Dog Weston. B-Dog Weston. <laughs> that might be... I mean, if, if, if someone was... If, you know, if the asteroid was heading to Earth and was about there in the sky and I had to eat something just before I, I popped my cogs, I'd probably say that would be the yeah. best thing I've ever eaten. I think I'm going to have to join you for that one. <laughs> that sounds absolutely gorgeous. Truffle. Why is truffle so delicious? Yeah, it's... I'm moving to Sussex. I think the, I think the problem... <laughs> people who don't like truffles are because they've had truffle oil, which I think mm. is, a, is a ghastly invention. Mm. But um, proper truffles... So freshly good. grated yeah so much more delicate than that oh oil. yeah it's the delicacy that's so amazing also yeah. they look unbelievable i mean i could photograph truffles yeah it's forever. almost like a like a black diamond kind of yeah like a, amazing mm. amazing it was the illustrative side of graphic design that you really loved so you initially worked as an illustrator but it was a desire to get out of the studio that led you to photography and i think you are quite unusual in the sense that you do so many different types of photography when you were starting out did people want to pigeonhole you you do and most photographers do get pigeonholed quite early mm. i think because i just abandoned illustration overnight and okay. became a photographer. <laughs> I had no understanding of the way the hierarchy worked or the the way, you know, you had to be a, an assistant for a couple of years and you either went into food photography or fashion photography. So I just did it all. Okay. I just assumed that's what people did. So I would do a fashion test one day, then I'd photograph a friend in his interior, or her interior, just... To practice then I went to Kew Gardens and photographed the the um, the architecture there mm. and the flora and fauna and that was my initial portfolio and when I first took my portfolio out I took it to three places my mm. first three meetings with my fresh photographic portfolio and I was rejected the, by the first two people oh. and they were really rude so I nearly cancelled the oh, third no. which was on the same day rude how why Oh, World of Interiors told me they took the piss out of my shoes for the first time. Oh, what? I know. It's like, that is rude. Uh, in fact, Rupert Thomas, who was then the one of the junior editors there, he's Alan Bennett's partner. And, oh, yes. And he'd seen me as a favour. I knew him a little bit, and he has since apologised for taking the piss out of my shoes <laughs> at my first meeting. What shoes were you than, wearing? I can't even remember. I think I was David. wearing monkey boots. David. I was a bit of a punk at the time. So I think I was probably wearing monkey boots, but he did explain that I couldn't come into Condé Nast wearing monkey boots. <laughs> um, and um, anyway, it, and then the second one just said that my my 
I was doing too many different things. He was totally confused by my portfolio. The third one was Gardens Illustrated, and they saw a picture I'd taken and said, we've just rejected a cover. It's Friday afternoon, and we need to commission a new cover on Monday, mm. but it's got to be done by Tuesday to hit the presses. And it's a picture of some anemones. But it was Claudia Zeff, who'd been art director at Penguin and knew me as an illustrator, and she said if you come in with a picture of anemones that looks good enough, it'll go on the cover. That's huge. So I spent the weekend sweating buckets <laughs> trying to find anemones and then she wanted them with, she wanted them with a sort of landscape which looked post 7pm, the sort of magic hour. Great. <laughs> um, of sort of bluey light and anemones and but, but the feeling that there's a landscape behind but you can't quite see it. And, of course, the weather was terrible that weekend. So <laughs> I did it in my front room. And being an illustrator, of course, I just painted the background and had it out of focus. Oh, perfect. So she always thought I'd shot it on a horizon, but actually I painted it. Oh, perfect. Um, and um, Which just shows there are no rules. But I shot 40 rolls of film. I was so... I, I was so to get determined the one shot. to get it right. Yeah. I had this old Hasselblad, and so it cost me way over the amount I was eventually paid. <laughs> and I was so frightened of taking it into Claudia's F that I put all the film in a plastic bag and hung it on the door of John Brown Publishing, rang the bell and there. ran. <laughs> yeah, and I rang at five o'clock in the afternoon because I hadn't heard anything. And I said to her, look, I'm really sorry I couldn't face seeing you, but I left it on the door. I hope you found it. I assume it's no good as you haven't called or anything. She went, oh, no, it's gone off to press. Oh. She said, <laughs> and she we'd, called? And, and um, we'd love you to shoot our next cover and the next one after that if you can. <gasps> oh. and, and by the way, there's an assignment to shoot a gardener. So initially I was a garden photographer. Wow. I love stories like that. Um, you just need one person to just I give know. you a chance. And when you get those early wins almost when you're starting out. I think that's really important because without them, it's kind of hard to keep the motivation. Oh, yeah. You need signs that you're on the right path, don't yeah, you? Yeah, and it was, it was funny. There were just these very quiet people who would just keep me buoyed. Mm. I mean, Joan Tinney, who was at Cosmopolitan, phoned me one day and she said, have you ever shot food? And I said, mm, no. <laughs> And she said, do you think you could shoot food a bit like you shoot your flowers? And I said, yeah, I assume so. She said, brilliant, I'd like to offer you a little column in the Cosmopolitan with a, with a guy called Richard Ehrlich, who's oh, wow. this funny little American man, really, really <laughs> sweet. And he turned up at my studio, my studio, which was my front room, where I shot all the food on a drawing board, resting on an armchair with a reflector made out of tinfoil. Which I know you got that from the Blue Peter studio. I did. Let's pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish. David, what is your favourite sandwich? Well, sandwiches are tricky for me because I'm celiac. Okay. And I was diagnosed um, a year before lockdown. Oh, right. Okay. So bread I struggle with. Mm. And as I, I told you about David Wright, and he's coming up with the perfect bread for me. Amazing. Because gluten-free bread is hopeless. Mm. Robin Gill makes a nice one at Derby's and Sally Clark makes a nice seeded, a really good seeded loaf. But, you know, mm. seeded loaves can be very dense, mm. but she makes a great one. The trouble is she doesn't make enough for the whole of London's okay. celiacs. <laughs> <laughs> and so where I live in sort of Chelsea Battersea, 
celiacism, if there's such a word, is very popular. Okay. In fact, in one of my favourite restaurants, there's a very, very sweet waiter and I'm allergic to chilli, so I've never been able to eat chilli. What happened? And it's, it's anaphylactic. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. I think it's me and Paul Smith, the two... Yeah, I've never two, heard that before. <laughs> ..two chilli allergies. And so my wife quite rightly reminded me to tell every waiter, that I'm really sorry, I'm celiac. So in the early days, I said uh, to the waiter, oh, I have to tell you my new allergy. I'm afraid I'm celiac. And he said, oh, darling, 90% of Chelsea is celiac. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say that you were only diagnosed with it just before lockdown, yeah. have you always been celiac? Yes. You just didn't know it. Yes. Wow. So a lifetime of being quietly poorly, particularly when I'm travelling, Particularly, particularly in Morocco, where I go a lot. Mm. And it turned out it was the couscous. And, uh, oh. of course, when you're poorly, you think, oh, I'll eat something simple. And I would say, I'll have a simple couscous. Mm. And it was debilitating. It really was. But when I eventually told my mother and my doctor at the same time, they, of course, tested me for something much worse, which at my age, they're sort of saying, oh, this doesn't look good. So when the results came back and they'd removed little lumps and bumps and said, nothing wrong with you, but did you know you're celiac? I promise you I celebrated for weeks. A huge relief. (laughs) So I kind of still am celebrating that, you know, I didn't have the big C, but but I'm celiac. But uh, David Wright's working on a recipe for the perfect, perfect loaf. Okay. And then when that is perfected... But what I would put in that loaf (laughs) is the question and... The perfect sandwich. I mean, I do like a really good egg mayonnaise. Mm. I have to say, my childhood favourite was definitely egg mayonnaise. Yeah. As long as I'm not in a train carriage yeah. <laughs> with egg mayonnaise. But well, that's fine for you. It's, it's more just bad for, for everybody people. else, yeah. <laughs> um, but a really good egg mayo is quite hard to beat. Mm. Really good. I think that's an excellent choice. Mm. One interview I read, you said that even now with your photography, you make a lot of mistakes, which I thought was a very generous thing to say, as I think people will take comfort in knowing that even the great David Loftus makes mistakes. And that also you only use one lens on your camera. Is that still true? It is true. Is that very unusual? I do have more lenses, but they tend to gather dust. Okay. Part of it's for show. Having lots of lenses. (laughs) Well, uh, I have been criticised for turning up at shoots with too little equipment. Okay. I've also been told if I turn up at advertising shoots, I should bring a tripod. (laughs) (laughs) Because I I shoot handheld. mm, I read that and that you have to bring assistance even though you don't normally use Yeah, I don't. I mean, I have a lovely lighting assistant, Ollie, who's a hoot, and... Um, Richard, who's my sort of digital assistant, Richard Boyer, who's who's fantastic, and I take him on Jamie shoots mainly to feed him up, um, <laughs> and but also because he cannot believe that he is on a Jamie Oliver shoot being cooked for and fed, and he's a fellow Essex boy, and Jamie literally doesn't leave him alone, oh. and is constantly, you know. He, Jamie's a teaser and a and a, a ribber, you mm. know. So Richard, being a fellow Essex boy, is perfect, and he's constantly feeding Richard, and I love to see that. And obviously, Jamie cooks a lot with chili, so he can use Richard as my sort of foil, really. Okay, perfect. David can't eat this. Give it to Richard, and Richard's as skinny as a rake. So 
feed up Richard. But I do bring a tripod sometimes, but quite often just, the camera just comes off it and it just, again, it sits in the corner. But but I am a, I'm a bit of a one lens wonder, yeah. And you've been known to say that if you can see you're a photographer and that most people can take a decent picture, mm. But I wanted to ask, what takes a photo from decent to really very good? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, a lot of those amateurs don't have the bravery to go professional, but they'd love to. Okay. And of course they could. There's work for everyone, really. I mean, mobile phones have proven that most people can be a photographer. And seeing what people do with their phones is extraordinary. Amazing. Then I mean, bon, I think... bon Appetit shot a exactly. whole issue, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. So... So everyone can do it. I think it's just following a few little rules. Mm. And light is always a problem. A lot of photography is very dark. And I've noticed that. And I always wonder, you'll see it in a restaurant or in in day-to-day life. People will go and take a photograph of some food. And I always think, just walk six foot to your right or left. There's a window. Mm. You know, just a bit of daylight will lift your photography. I have to say, David, I'm always so grateful when I see that you've liked one of my pictures on Instagram, but I also feel feel so stressed thinking about what you... I think you're liking it to be very kind and nice. You're good. No, but your filming's filming's good as well. And again, it's the minutiae. You you focus on the minutiae, which I think is the the key as well. I think the law of thirds helps everyone. Okay. So always think of things in thirds. Yeah. As I said, my brain kind of works in a in a sort of golden rectangle mm-hmm. and then divide it into thirds. So if you shoot a landscape, make sure your A, your horizon is straight. That's a yeah. real bugbear. And then, you know, two thirds sky, one third sea or mm. landscape, or two thirds yeah. landscape and sea and one third sky. But if you think of that with food. It works exactly the same or a portrait or anything. If you get your angle straight and think of the law of thirds, you're... More than halfway there. More than halfway there, yeah. We're on to the fifth desert island dish. What's the dish you eat the most often? The one I order most often is probably oysters. Mm. I'm obsessed with oysters. Um, in fact, I had some last night. Oh, you did? And um, there's a new Noma Projects have decided, I've obviously gone on Rene's mailing list, which is lovely, and they've sent me these new vinegars. And there's a forager's vinegar. It's unbelievable. It's like something I've never tasted before. And I put it on some oysters and shucked oysters last night for the first time. Oh, wow. And Charlie Bigham sent them for our birthday, sent sent my birthday. So he sent me this big old thing of oysters and, and shucked them all last night. We had them with forager's vinegar on. Oh, wow. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's so good. That sounds but, incredible. But my kind of signature dish is clams. Mm. And I change it, again, because I don't have a recipe, I change it depending on what I have. But it's essentially, I go walk up to Chelsea Fish with the dog and ask for clams, so the big juicy clams. And the fisherman always gets out about, I don't know, half a kilo of clams and goes, any more? And I say, oh, yes, double that. Make it a kilo. <laughs> and um, so he does a kilo. Oh, well, yeah, because it's mainly shell. Yeah, so he does a kilo of clams. He looks at me slightly puzzled, a kilo. I say, actually, a kilo and a handful. <laughs> so now I just go in and I ask for a kilo plus a handful of clams for two. Sounds um, good. And then I slow cook, you know, the big white onions, 
the lovely big juicy onions, those, garlic, uh, white wine, lots of cherry tomatoes, and a tin of those lovely muti cherry Ooh, tomatoes, yeah, the sweet the ones. Chuck those in. And then just a whole bunch of parsley, all the stalks, everything, all that goes in. And some wine, obviously, and clams, all the clams in. Honestly, it's it's bliss. Good mm-hmm. oil. Do you ever toss them through pasta or you just have them as they you are? Know, oh, no, I also put in those lovely white beans, you know, the jarred white Ooh, beans. So yeah. haricot beans, so no pasta. Okay. Ooh. Haricot beans Ooh. or the bu- big butter beans if they're, depending what's in the in the cupboard. David, that sounds absolutely delicious. And that makes it really sort of, the beans yeah. make it really creamy. Mm. I mean, you don't need anything else. And because there's so many clams, you're never hungry. (laughs) You know, it's amazing. Yeah. It's bliss. Yeah. So that's my invention. That sounds really good. I'm going to have to recreate that. You've now shot well over 30 books with Jamie Oliver and more than 30 million copies in book sales, which is absolutely incredible. I wondered, how did your friendship begin? Was it through work or did you know each other before and when you first worked together did either of you have any inkling of what lay ahead of both of you i was first sent to photographing by the saturday times Mm. and it was it was really sweet the saturday times then was really uh, it was the sort of prettiest of those saturday magazines i mean still it's still a great magazine but it had a very sort of forward-thinking picture editor and they were doing a summer summer bumper issue, and they had shot a feature of me living. I was living on a houseboat in Chelsea, and they did the sort of centerfold thing. They said they were hoping to get a cover out of it, which I thought, oh, that would be nice for yeah. my career. Yeah. And you know, so it's me on the boat with my then very very young son. I think he must have been nine months. Oh wow! So on the boat, and I was thinking, oh, it'd be great if that went on the cover. And then uh, they said, actually, we'd like you to shoot most of the issues. So there was an interior, another interior shoot. So I shot the rest of the thing. And then I got this call, and it was a real mixed blessing. They said, we've changed our mind about the cover. And I was oh. like, oh, great. <laughs> and they said, yeah, this hot young chef is bringing out a book called The Naked Chef. Oh, really? <laughs> and they said, can you, can you go and shoot him on a rooftop in the city? We've hired this apartment, and he's turning up at... Uh, 2 p.m. He's going to cook a little barbecue for four friends. And uh, we just need a great sort of reportage portrait of him, plus get the dishes if you can and some pictures of the friends entertaining him. Okay. So off I went at 2 o'clock. Um, beautiful apartment. 7 p.m. he turned up. <gasps> turned out that no one had actually communicated with Jamie that... This was quite a big deal. And he was just doing his shift at the River Cafe. He was five hours late because he was doing his shift at the River Cafe. So he was doing the lunch shift. So he turned up. There was no barbecue that he liked at the location on the rooftop. So he ran downstairs, found some rubbish from a skip, came back up to this really chic modern (laughs) apartment, built a barbecue out of tires and pieces of wood i mean it's very jamie and um proceeded to put on very loud music (laughs) and cook a barbecue in the fading light oh my goodness he loves to tell the story because i had my i had my 
old Hasselblad, which I shot on, and they're, they're difficult to shoot on handheld mm. anyway, but he was fascinated that that's what I did because he'd already shot a book. You know, he was thought, okay. he, thought he knew everything about a book shoot. And yeah. I'm winding away with a film. It's getting dark, and I was using daylight film, so I knew all the colours were going to go wacky. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing pre-digital, there's nothing you can do about it. So I was just winging it, basically. That's anyway, his four friends turned up. It turned out it was 22 friends. Oh, my God. Most of whom <laughs> had come for a jolly and were half tiddly from <laughs> the pub and various other places. So I thought it was a disaster, the shoot. He then phoned the Times the following day and complained that he barely saw me. <gasps> But I was he trying to, but I was trying you. to cover everything. You know, I was trying to. Anyway, the Times said, you know, he's very respected, David Loftus. You know, you should go and <laughs> check him out. Yeah, and he got the cover, and Jamie's like, oh, you know, and it was his first magazine cover. You know, he's probably had thousands. Since. Yeah, that was the and, first um, one. And again, it's slightly blurry. Um, it's very blue because it's on daylight film and it's almost nighttime, so it's it's got a bluish tone again. Were you pleased with it? Not really, but then... You never are. You no, I'd preferred, I did one in black and white, which I much prefer, but of course okay. black and white was far too... Anyway, it was, it was a, it's a sweet picture and he, he went to the bookshop the following day and he, he found this series of four books by Alastair Hendy called Fresh In. So it was fresh in spring, fresh in summer, fresh in winter. And um, he left a message on my aunt's phone. I, he called me and I... I just didn't feel like picking up the phone. So my aunt's phone went on and, goes, and it was Jamie going, I am not worthy, I am not worthy, I am not worthy. And it was really sweet. He said, I've just bought your Alistair Hendy books. I'm really sorry. I, he had no I'd idea. love to work with you again. And yeah, Initially, I was just commissioned to do the cover of Return of the Naked Chef. But then while we were shooting the cover of Return of the Naked Chef, they said, actually, we'd love you to shoot the whole book. Wow. And then I and carried on. that was the on. beginning. Yeah. That's amazing. And, we, you know, we became godparents to each other's kids. It's so interesting to look back and think about how it all began and how first impressions aren't always right and I don't yeah. know. Yeah, well, he took on his first, uh, Louise Holland, who's who partly runs his company now, he took on as an assistant mm. and we interviewed her at the Bluebird and I said, Jamie, are you sure you need an assistant? Which is madness, considering yeah. you think of the 7,000 people he's employed. Um, I said, are you sure you need us? He said, well, you've got one. <laughs> I want one. <laughs> That's so funny. So when you first met him and he mm. was building a barbecue out of the tyres, did you think immediately that he had it? Like, could you see what he the He was so different to anyone I'd shot before. Mm. You know, I'd shot Gordon, I'd shot all these sort of highfalutin Michelin-starred chefs. And and he was so different. You know, I'd, I'd seen a huge amount of bullying in the kitchen, which I couldn't bear. And I, I really began to question where I was going with my photography. And I definitely thought I didn't want to be around chefs mm. as such. And, you know, he was cooking for friends. The staff at the River Cafe obviously adored him. He was chums with everyone from the pot washer to the head chef. He was so giving, so funny. I mean, people don't really understand how funny he is. He is 
one of the funniest people I've ever oh, met. Oh, really? But, you know, in that sort of old school humour of mm. just everything is hysterically funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I couldn't believe he was using this tiny little gas stove and, you know, cooking the most extraordinary food mm. and still would be the same. He's yeah. the, one of the very few people, you know, with the weirdy beardies and, you know, I'm lucky to work with people like Nicholas Eckstedt who cook with live fire, but... They're the people you want to be on a desert island yes. with, you know, because they will literally just dig a tiny hole, make a fire, find something and cook it. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, it's an amazing way to live. And they're, they're definitely some of the best flavours through my career. You work with very famous people, but you do also shoot first-time cookbooks. You shot mm. The Roasting Tin when Rick Minnie was an unknown writer and it's gone on to sell millions of copies. When you get a job come in for a cookbook, what is it that will make you say yes? I mean, I've always put it out there that I want to shoot first-time chefs. Okay. And, of course, Why? I'm incredibly loyal to my... So the people I like, I, I'm so loyal to. I, I'm heartbroken when they go somewhere else, you know, on book two or book three. And often it's because they just want change or... Or, no, that you know, must want be a really female hard. photographer. Or, oh, it's heartbreaking. It's awful. Rukmini's been incredibly loyal, and chefs can be a bit funny about Rukmini. It's you know, it's 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 roasting tin. It's simple. It's, it's for some, it's too easy, and it's it's almost. I think well-known chefs think it's almost like cheating. Mm. You know, it's like a hack or yeah. something. But actually, <laughs> she's been one of the most influential yeah. chefs in my world. Mm. I mean. It's how people cook at home. Four times a week, I just throw all the vegetables I have into a roasting tin and throw in some beans and herbs and good oil. And I mean, and that's completely rook mini. Yeah. Um, I've just started working with Giuseppe Seps, mm. who's, who cooks with his nonna, mm. vegan. I've just done Sam's Eats. Oh, yes. Uh, which has been lovely. It's the passion, I guess, mm. that, that I love. And that's a bit like the early Jamie passion. Yeah. Now, Jamie is exactly the same now as he was 22 years ago. The passion is as intense. Mm. So do you get a pitch for a cookbook and you meet the person and then you decide if you're yeah. going to say yes? So and with like, Giuseppe, do I you met say no? him. And um, I have been known to say no. Do you make up a very polite excuse? Yeah, it hasn't happened very often, to be honest. Okay. What's really upsetting is when I hear from some Max Lamanna. Mm. Uh, I, he was he was in Fortnum's recently, and I was in mm. there shooting, and the Fortnum staff came up and asked, "Would I mind shooting his portrait while he's there?" And he came up. He's the sweetest, mm. sweetest chap, and again, so passionate, mm. so amazing, and you know all about about everything I everything I'm passionate about, about waste and, you know, and he said, oh, I was so sad you couldn't do my book. I looked at him and I'm oh, sorry. No. Oh, no. And he said, yeah, apparently um, it didn't fit into your schedule. Oh, no, David. It's a bit like the speech at art college, David. isn't it? I know. I know. And You've I was got like, to remember who you said no to. Well, I didn't. That was the thing I was never oh, asked. Oh. I would never say to someone it didn't fit my schedule, but also to someone I was so passionate about. Mm. Um, but it was never so, put to you. But it was never got to me. And I know what it's like. You Publishers have friends and friends who are photographers yeah. and loyalty to photographers. Mm. And, but it is upsetting when you hear somehow you've turned something down without yeah. even being asked. <laughs> but it's very rare that I've turned... I've tended to turn down people because I've known they're bullies. 
Oh. And there's a few people that I would definitely never work with again. And, oh, really? and that whole chefing world, that's where I saw some real horrors of bad behavior. And, mm. and I do think chefing still is going to, the chef world is going to have its big Me Too mo mm. movement at some point. Um, because I've seen some terrible behavior. Yeah. And, um, and I wouldn't, I can't, I couldn't be around it. So I have walked out of shoots before. Have you? As a result. Yeah. I like that. We need more David Loftus in the world. <laughs> We're on to the sixth desert island dish. What's your go-to dinner party dish? The last dinner party I had was about two weeks ago, and I did the clams. Mm. So the clam dish would be... Yeah. Um, would you Do you tend to serve a starter? Well, now that in the last three days I've properly learned how to shuck an oyster yes. without <laughs> seriously damaging myself or yeah. the wooden surface at home or anything i would definitely do oysters with the vinaigrette mm. do you throw many dinner parties i don't really to be honest i'm a great go outer mm. and i love restaurants because of my allergies and the things i have old favorites that i've mm. gone to for years and i still go to it's kind of easier to go to a restaurant than it is to a friend's house because... oh some of the best and some of the best times of my life have been in restaurants mm. really you know, Carousel for my birthday the other night was thinking, this is one of the most magical moments of my life. Wow. It's not bad at 60. Yeah, it's amazing. You know. And are you a pudding person? I am a pudding person. Um, I'm quite a simple pudding person. I, I mean, I'm quite happy with a bar of fruit and nut. Oh, yeah. If I'm really honest. <laughs> um, Nothing wrong with but, that. But, uh, you know, something like um, anything with figs in. Anything with pistachios, mm. a good pistachio ice cream is hard to beat. If I can have pistachio ice cream on a gluten-free fig tart, Ooh. which is full of frangipani, mm. served with a nice glass of rosé, that would probably be my ultimate. That'd be very good. Yeah. This is going to be a very hard question for you, David. On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to ask you, what is your most treasured cookbook? Actually, it's not the hardest thing. I, I, have, I have this little obsession, which I really wanted to make a film about uh, Alexis Sawyer. Mm. Do you know Alexis mm. Sawyer? So he was the head chef at the Reform Club in the 1840s, I think. And he was the pers first person. He invented the soup kitchen. He, well, it was the potato famine that started, I think. And he would go to impoverished areas and make soups and teach people. And he would write cookbooks. He was the first ever celebrity chef, essentially. And he would teach people how to make this soup. And it was called poor soup. And, uh, and as a result, he started writing books. So writing books for the poor, but then he also needed to make some money. So he'd write books for the rich um <laughs> he and need, i think he needed some help with his branding i'm not sure Paul. well he was a bigamist <laughs> for one thing which was not good for his branding um he um but he did go off, florence nightingale apparently hated him oh. but he did go off to the crimea because he read that more people were dying from poor hygiene of nutrition mm. than were from gunshot wounds wow. so he went off the crimea and he invented a field stove called the Sawyer stove Wow. And it's a, they still use it in the army today. And it changed the course of the Crimean War. Wow. I think Florence Nightingale was equally publicity mm. sort of aware. 
Yeah. They were the two celebrities of their age in the Crimea yeah. and they fought a bit apparently. That's I always so wanted to make I always wanted to make a film of him, but at the same time I was also obsessed with Alexander Dumas. Mm. And I always thought my you know if I was going to sit down and have my sort of final dinner with celebrities from the past, yeah. I always thought I'd have Alexis Sawyer doing the cooking on his little Sawyer stove and I'd have Dumas writing about it and talking about uh, he was he wrote the best book I've ever read which is The Count of Monte Cristo mm. and it's a story of revenge and I quite like revenge I know it's really like um PC to like revenge but perfect revenge is quite cool and a lot of people have wronged me in life so I feel you know feel perfect like... revenge so I have Duma but he wrote a cookbook so not a lot of people knew, no, know but, I didn't know but that. yeah so he wrote he wrote the perfect French cookbook and did he really? Yeah. So everyone reads the, you know, the Three Musketeers and stuff. But he actually wrote a cookbook. That's so. And I always thought it'd be quite nice to republish it, but with photos. Mm. So between Sawyer and Duma. Yes. Does that all sound a bit abstract? No, I love that. I also. I can't get my head around lovely David Loftus oh, saying revenge. he loves oh. revenge. I mean, I read about a guy at your art college who I think was very jealous of you and stole all of your final he project did. and your camera. He did. And when you recounted that story, you were so lovely and unbothered and and um, you know who it was. You see. So you, you're not a revenge seeker. Rebecca Frain, who, who did a documentary about my twin and I mm. for Channel 4, she always said, you know, I was like a swan. <laughs> So it's quiet and graceful okay, on the top. Okay, so you've got to watch out. Underneath that water. Okay. Um, but no, you know... Ange, and it's best served cold, yeah, so you're just biding your time. You know, Anne's tra <laughs> tracked him down. Yes, I know. And and got my father's camera off him. Amazing. I know, and gave it to me Was he Christmas. sheepish? I think he's in, probably in denial. But uh, somehow he said, you know, he felt he should clear my stuff away because I wasn't there for some reason. Or, you know, it's it's, yeah. it's a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, no. We, we don't hold grudges. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? I would start definitely start with my papaya mm. with a squeeze of lime great thing about of course going off to actually desert island would i would i mind about the toiletry consequences of celiacness i wonder oh yeah so maybe if i'm on the, my own on the desert <laughs> island thing to i think know about. i do apologize <laughs> i do apologize but you know us celiacs have to think like this no. it's like the consequences are quite dire yeah. so so you have to think whose company you're going to be in and where you're going to be. Yeah. Of course, Desert Island, I assume we're on our own. You are. We're on our own. So I'd get, definitely go for my papaya with lime. I'd follow it up with, with a good old loaf of sourdough. Mm. I'll be sick for a week, but hey. Um, and <laughs> that the will truffles. pass the time. Actually, I might add a starter, another starter. Equally sourdough, but with pickled herrings. Ooh. I love Swedish food, and they're so good for you. Would you have a pudding before you go to the desert island? Uh, it'd have to be the same as before. You see, it's it's it, just stick pistachios, figs. We have frangipani. Again, yeah. I can have real pastry because yes. I'm going to be poorly anyway for a week or yeah. two. So 
some really nice buttery pastry. Mm. You know, where where the it's, it's that thing where the frangipani meets pastry, and there's that jamminess. Mm. Maybe a fig jam in there. Mm. Jeremy King always used to make the always had the best desserts. He brought one back onto the menu once because Ange and I were so upset, and it was a prune tart. Ooh. So again, prunes, figs. That sort of dates, mm. anything with dates. So good. It's all those things. That's what I'd throw it all at. I'd throw all those things into the same dessert, actually. <laughs> well, with that, David Loftus, we're going to send you to the Desert Island. Thank you so much. Those were your Desert Island dishes. Bless you. It's an absolute pleasure. So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're listening, I think really you can rate it in some way and it really does help others to find out about the podcast, it kind of boosts it in the charts and it's just a very helpful thing and reviews really do make all the difference, so thank you very much. If you don't already, you can come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and also find a whole host of different recipes at desertislanddishes.co. Thank you very much again to our sponsor, HG Walter. We couldn't bring this to you without them. So very grateful for their support. And I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.